every day is a brand new adventure. So let's embark on this journey together. City News 570 presents Kitchener Today. Here's special guest host, Larry Fedorik. Of an introduction on the show. Isn't that nice? Thank you for that. City News 570. This is uh, Larry Fedorik, and I am guest hosting once again today on Kitchener Today. Thank you for, uh, well, thank you for having me on City News 570. Thank you for joining the program today. We've got a lot to talk about over the next few hours. Uh, I'm going to revisit masks. Uh, um, you know, some people may dread that already. Oh, masking. We're still talking. We are talking about masking because uh, it's the mask mandates have dropped, which I didn't necessarily agree with. And I'll tell you why. It's not that I feel we should all be masked all the time. I just thought that one standard rule was easier than uh, the province saying, all right, we're dropping our mask mandates. Now it's up to you. Uh, it's up to you, Kitchener-Waterloo Transit. It's up to you, uh, individual stores. You could conceivably walk into a mall, store to store, would have a different mask mandate. And now also it's up to these individual businesses to uh, enforce their own mask policy, which can be troublesome, can also be very expensive, and so on and so forth. So here we have, um, I think, an expectation of a different spring or summer in our COVID world, maybe a freer, better uh, spring and summer of 2022 that remains to be seen. But we're going to revisit with a professor from University of Waterloo the issue of masks and maybe why we should keep wearing them. I've, I've already seen a lot of maskless people, and I've also talked to a couple people, just this is all very anecdotal, but talk to a couple of people who go, yeah, I'm going to be the last guy. And I'm like, no, I'm the last guy where well, I'm going to be wearing masks for a long time before I feel comfortable going out without one. Um, but, you know, and that's only in, you know, indoor closed settings. I mean, as soon as I get you know, distance from people, if I'm outside or walking or in a parking lot or something, the mask is off, you know, uh, uh, to breathe that, breathe that direct air. But anyway, we're going to revisit masking. We're also going to talk later on in the program to one of my favorite people. I've talked to him over the years many times, uh, even when he was at uh, U Guelph. And now he's been at uh, Dalhousie for a few years. And he is the go-to uh, food expert. As a matter of fact, he calls himself the food professor. He is an actual professor at Dalhousie. Uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is going to join us later on in the program. We're going to talk about, um, I guess, food security vis-a-vis -vis inflation and the price of food. And I know I've talked with uh, Dr. Charlebois over the years, many times sort of as, you know, year end comes and we predict what food prices might be the next year, but suddenly, you know, this year it's beef or this year it's butter or this year it's, it's canned goods. And it's just this time around this inflationary period has seen kind of everything go up all at once and rather quickly. That's coming up in the program, and we're going to delve into a word maybe a lot of people have heard for the first time in the last 24 to 48 hours, aphasia. It is the ailment that is plaguing and has been plaguing Bruce Willis, and Bruce Willis and his team, his family and his team, have come forward and said this is what our, our friend and colleague has been suffering with for a couple of years and we're going to go public with it now this aphasia this brain 
ailment. What is it exactly? We'll talk to an expert from McMaster University about this. So that's all coming up in the program. We'll get you the phone numbers. You can participate and uh, uh, would love to talk to you about these and other topics throughout the afternoon. To begin today, this week, 32 delegates from various First Nations and Indigenous peoples across Canada are in Rome. And they are talking, I was going to say with the Pope, mostly to the Pope. For the Pope, it is, it is kind of a listening session. And they are telling the stories of residential schools and of other uh, you know, nightmares of colonization uh, of which the Catholic Church was maybe not active participants, but gave their blessing famously in the doctrine of discovery for the colonization of North America and um, taking the lands of, of indigenous peoples. And there is this delegation in Rome that I believe to be somewhat historical. Miengun Henry is the former chief of the Chippewas of the Thames, First Nation, and joins us now to talk about this. Chief Henry, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Larry. Thank you for inviting me. I sense as a non-Indigenous person looking from the outside that this is historic. Do you believe this is historic? Frame this for us. Why is this particular visit so special and different? I'm glad you mentioned that because most Canadians probably see it from that perspective. And uh, there's a lot to unpack in the time that we have. But to frame this with Indigenous people's perspective, there's, a, there's an era of uh, mistrust here. Uh, we've spoken to popes in the past, and uh, we've had delegations visit the pope and with hopes that he would uh, follow through on, well, what now would be the call to action number 58 in, in the TRC recommendations. Uh, but we haven't seen that yet, and a lot of the survivors today uh, have heard the words uh, that it should be done, but we haven't seen it happen yet. So there's a little bit of uh, unsuredness, you know, whether this will happen or not in their lifetime. So mm-hmm. I really think that the, the hope for this Pope to come to Canada and apologize, uh, as uh, we were hoping, is may not happen. Um, we're not at least sure that it will happen because he hasn't even issued a uh, an apology yet uh, or even indicating that he will. So Right. Uh, now, I, I want to point out, you said survivors, and I think that's important to point out that residential schools went on, gosh, I'm blanking on the date, but it's late 80s, early 90s, the last one closed, is it not? Exactly, yes. It was over 100 So this years. is not ancient. Yeah, this is not ancient history. I mean, for some, yeah, there are descendants of survivors who heard the stories firsthand, but there actual are survivors of the residential school system because it went on so incredibly long. So uh, these, I've heard and I've watched the groups, uh, indigenous groups in Rome, and some of them seem very positive about the meetings with the Pope. Are you sensing any of that at all? Well, I think we need to maintain positiveness, uh... And, and without speaking to them, we'll never get there. So I think we need to look at that for a bit. But in general, uh, we need to make sure that there's a commitment from the Pope to uh, to do that exactly thing. Um, but it's not just about the apology. It's about uh, getting rid of, well, Section 
or uh, call to action number 49 talks about him rescinding the doctrine of discovery. This is even more challenging. And this is something that I feel can be accomplished over there, at least having a conversation. It's going to be a huge, huge uh, thing to do. But that doctrine of discovery, you know, was probably the foundation piece for the Indian Act, the residential schools and all land claims here in Canada. So he does have the ability to make some major changes uh, by his uh, uh, rescinding of the doctrine of discovery. And I know most Canadians haven't heard that before, but it's a really important part of uh, history that Canada needs to learn more about. It's this doctrine is one of the papal bulls. When I was a when I was a kid, me and I learned in school. A lot of us did. Um, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's how we remembered that date. This doctrine of discovery, I believe, is 1493. Is it not? And it, it was it's basically a blessing to the explorers to say, "Yeah, go over there, take what you want." That's exactly it, and it led to what they described as land being held by indigenous people to be called, there's another word called terranalis, which means nobody owns this land, so it's open for anybody to take. So that, there, there you have all the, all the, all the nations living uh, relegated to nobody's status. That's incredible. And, and that's how deep this is, and, and that's why this conversation needs to be had, and, and a pope has the ability to rescind that doctrine, which hasn't been done yet. And, and that's what we're hoping for, but uh, it's going to be a huge challenge. Uh, we've indoctrinated ourselves in this country to live the way we do, to, to invoke that, um, I think, will be a big challenge. Uh, but we're going to push for it. You know, the history needs to be told, and we have to fix some of these things that, that history hasn't uh, allowed people to understand. Sorry, in any case, is really just a first step, right? So, you, I mean, is that correct, though? But the Pope would be great to get an apology and on Canadian soil. Is that not the important part? That's the important part. It's only a step because the Prime Minister of Canada made an apology, and, and we didn't feel any anything out of that. But it's a step in the right direction. But looking at his history, where he did uh, apologize to the, the abuses in Ireland, so he has a history, you know, of, of doing things while well, the Pope has a history. And, and it seems to have more strength outside of Canada. And, and we feel like we need to have that same, you know, commitment here to the First Nations in Canada. All week, the Pope has been listening uh, to the stories. And there is supposed to be an announcement tomorrow. I think the Vatican said that there will be a more from the Pope. Or, or from the Vatican on, on April 1st. Um, is there any expectation there, uh, you know, concrete expectation? And nothing concrete that I know of right now, but I think what we're going to hear is he will come to Canada. Uh, and maybe if we're lucky, you know, he will do the apology here. Uh, that's the hope right now. So everybody's kind of anticipating uh, what that announcement will be tomorrow. We're hoping that he does. Then there's the actions. I mean, there's the story this week that I heard of uh, a priest who was in Canada who eventually, after accusations, uh, moved to France, is still alive and living in some sort of exile, shall we call it, in France. And would you want the Pope to um, have him face face up, face charges? Every criminal needs to face uh, 
their charges. Uh, you can't move away and still, um, how do you live, you know, by knowing that those crimes were committed, especially against children? Uh, um, and, and I think the Pope needs to stand up and say that all those perpetuators will need to uh, have justice, uh, uh, you know, um, offered to the Indigenous people, you know, because that's, it, it hurts them to know that they're walking free. You know, we've seen over history here in Canada where, where shootings of Indigenous people uh, took place and, and people are, are walking free in Canada. That that just hurts even more, even after the abuse took place. So we won't resolve this until people in authority, such as the Pope, will make that commitment to try to make this right. It's a big job, but I think uh, he has the ability. And if he's committed, you know, we can see some justice. Mm-hmm. I heard a phrase that I I had not heard before. Uh, I heard it this week, and it was intergenerational trauma, which really spoke to me uh, because I know we have a tendency to pass things on, pass things down. And after intergenerational trauma, I heard intergenerational healing. Uh, Can you talk about the first one, and is the second one possible? Larry, I, I live that, you know, as a, a second generation survivor, I, I'm doing what my parents taught me and what they were learning in residential schools was to not be, a, you know, affectionate, you know, even to your own family and children. That That's kind of been entwined in the survivors. And when you pass it on to generations uh, beyond yours, it thrives and it lives, you know, so the healing part of it. Is something we all need to work on. It's a, it's a, it's a hard, deep depression within all Indigenous people because we were all affected by it. The healing part of it, and if you look at truth and reconciliation, that's the part that is going to be a, a, a huge commitment, not just from Indigenous people, but but all people, you know, Canadians in general. So we got a long ways to go. Uh, we're getting our language back. We're, we're practicing our ceremonies again, and that's going to be part of the healing that, in, by Canadian law, was taken away uh, from us. So now we can't let that stop us from our healing practices now. The other part of it that was an awakening for me, and maybe we'll end on this, is I, I want people to understand, non-Indigenous peoples, that we tend to um, lump you together. I, if, you know, I know that sounds terrible, but these are Indigenous peoples. These are First Nations peoples. But within First Nations, there are what? Dozens, if not hundreds, of different groups and peoples and tribes? Well, yeah, they, they tried to consider it a pan-Indigenous nation, but the diversity is so huge, and we have to look at those from that perspective. We can't, one thing can't fix all. And I think that's how governments tend to uh, deal with things. Uh, one size doesn't fit all because we're all in different geographical locations. Our, our, our ceremonies are different, so we can't put them into one, one shoebox. And, and I think that's what they tend to do, even when it came to compensation, you know, for residential school survivors. It was, it was a, a, you know, the amount of money that was uh, subject, you know, to everybody. So it, it, that's how difficult it is to deal with. And, and, and until we start dealing with it, uh, it's going to take a long time to resolve, a very long time. Well, I, I think so, but I think once once the ball gets rolling, if it truly does, things can happen quicker uh, than we think sometimes. And that, that's my hope uh, for this. Certainly, this has been very enlightening. Uh, Miangun, thank you for your time so much today. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Uh, appreciate the interview.
Myengan Henry is former chief of the Chippewas of the Thames, First Nation, talking about the delegation in Rome right now. And, uh, you know, fingers crossed as as indigenous groups, and certainly I think all of us who care about this, uh, have our fingers crossed on some sort of major announcement out of the uh, Vatican tomorrow. We'll talk a little bit more about this after our short break here on Kitchener Today, City News 570. I am your guest host today, Larry Fedorik. Great to be on City News 570. And uh, we can be reached at 519-570-2545. 1-800-570-5715 is toll-free, star 570 on your cell. If you want to comment on uh, some of the topics we have today, we just had a great conversation with the former chief of the uh, Chippewas of the Thames First Nation, uh, Miengun Henry. We talked with the delegation in Rome, and it's really been leading up to tomorrow. And um, I was raised Catholic. I'm not a good Catholic. I'll tell you this right now. So here we are for a lot of reasons. But um, as I look at this, uh, this massive organization that is the Catholic Church worldwide and the Vatican, and uh, I have a lot of thoughts about it. Number one, pay taxes. I would I would love that, but that's all churches. That's an, another topic perhaps I shouldn't have even touched on, you know. Um, can't open worms everywhere. But nevertheless, uh, you know, audit the Vatican Bank, look through the Vatican files. The Vatican has said this week they don't have files. They said that these very various dioceses from around the world who would have had uh, programs of residential schools and various policies – towards indigenous peoples that a lot of those wouldn't necessarily be sent back to Rome. So one of the indigenous requests is, well, while in Rome, could we open up the files, please, and go through the, you know, the catacombs, the documents, and find all the documents. They say they're not there. Well, okay. I, I don't know. I don't know. So I guess it's back to Canada and various dioceses to open up their records at various churches and, and things like that, and um, find out what uh, what the policies were. The the more exposure we can get for this, the better, as Chief Henry just said. And we have our fingers crossed, as I said, for uh, tomorrow, an, an announcement from the Vatican as to what is the next step. When I hosted this show on Monday, guest hosted, I mentioned uh, we talked about the slap at the Oscars, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. And my line that day was, um, you know, we're talking about it today. We're not going to be talking about it tomorrow. Here it is Thursday. And for various reasons, we're, we're kind of still talking about it. However, having said that, to me, the story out of entertainment and the show business world, if you will, that uh, I think is, is more worth talking about, I guess, is Bruce Willis a fan favorite across so many genres, what a career he's had. We think of him as the leading man action hero, but he has just uh, done some great quiet movies as well. I'll call them quiet movies where he's just been a terrific actor. And now aphasia, this ailment that we're going to talk about just after 1230 here on Kitchener today, when we get back, we'll have an expert on to talk more about that. Oh, that's perfect. That's really perfect. Just like a cop. You're never there when you need one. What did I do now? Somebody put a rattlesnake in a mailbox, Hector. 
Bruce Willis. Uh, incredible. Yesterday when I was guest hosting the show, the news was on City News 570 that Bruce Willis and his team had announced the actor was suffering from aphasia. Uh, it's a brain ailment and uh, had been for some time and that he was stepping back from his film career to deal with the symptoms of aphasia. Uh, it's interesting because today a director, Kevin Smith, I don't know if you watched Kevin Smith, director of Clerks and a lot of great movies. And Kevin Smith has done these Kevin Smith movies where he's just basically in an auditorium full of people and he talks for like three hours and they're fascinating. He's a great storyteller, a lot of laughs. And he talked about working years ago with Bruce Willis and the experience of being kind of an indie smaller director, suddenly working with a major movie star and how, how different life was when you work with Bruce Willis. And he, he would often tell stories about, you know, the, you know, in a humorous kind way, but he would tell stories about the difficulty working with a big star, how they can be quirky and difficult. And Kevin Smith uh, yesterday or today apologized for those remarks saying he thinks maybe even way back when it's not that Bruce was difficult to work with. It was just that perhaps he was going through um, parts of his aphasia where he wasn't quite sure where he was or needed to kind of reassess the situation because the signals just weren't reaching the brain the way they would for anybody else. Interesting, interesting story. Fascinating because we love, I think, most of us, Bruce Willis, so much. I wanted to find out more about this word that has entered our lexicon now, aphasia. Our guest is Dr. Elizabeth Service, professor and the graduate program chair in the Department of Linguistics and Language at McMaster University and joins us now on Kitchener today. Hello, Dr. Service. Hello. Aphasia. So for many of us, I think the first time we heard this word, it's a, I guess, a brain ailment. Can you describe it further? Well, actually, it is, um, it is a, an ailment of language function, but it can have many, many different causes. And the most common cause would be stroke. So patients after a stroke have problems uh, communicating with language. Um, other possible causes that are sort of uh, uh, acute could be um, traumatic brain injury when you hit your head, um, a, a brain tumor, um, but it could also be a progressive disease. Um, we talk about progressive aphasia, and it could also be related to dementia. So these causes have a very different picture of aphasia. Right. So you mentioned head injury, which is um, interesting because of Bruce Willis, who did a lot of action movies and didn't do all of his own stunts, of course, but it can be a rough and tumble job some days. You wonder about that. Yeah, so it is one of the um, things that are being very much investigated now are sports injuries to the head and their long-term consequences. Um, but in... A head, one single head injury can give you an acute aphasia, which can uh, resolve later uh, and often does. Um, but then there can be long-term consequences of much milder uh, brain injuries that even 
are not even giving symptoms at the time of injury. You mentioned dementia, and I, I wanted to ask you about that because some of the symptoms they talked about for Mr. Willis uh, is ling- linguistic issues, language issues, but also kind of forgetting exactly where he was and what the situation was that he was in, um, which are which are signs of you know other other signs that we hear about Alzheimer's and other dementia. Is, is it similar in that regard? So it's really hard to say based on so little uh, information uh, and the information not coming from medical experts, but from his family. So I don't really want to speculate exactly what is going on, but um, one kind of of, uh, progressive aphasia is linked to Alzheimer's disease, uh, which is maybe more better known um, generally as as a dementing disease. But there are other kinds of dementias that are more often start with language problems and then in the end, uh, also procreate other cognitive functions. Right, right. And I didn't mean specifically Bruce Willis. I mean, just in general, aphasia and and how it compares to others. And, you know, I'm sure in time we'll find out. And I I think when a celebrity has a particular uh, affliction or whatever it is, you you tend to learn more about it. I guess that's a small positive in that we we get the discussion going and, and more people learn about it, I think. Is that not right, doctor? That is correct. But I would say that aphasia on its own just refers to problems with language function. So okay. uh, a person with aphasia can be perfectly clear-headed, can know exactly in their mind what they want to say, but will not be able to say it in a, in a coherent way. Uh, and they may be either struggling with remembering words or they may be struggling with constructing sentences um, or they may be um, struggling with understanding um, the speech of others. But that doesn't mean that they have lost, uh, they have become confused. They can be totally uh, totally uh, clear in their heads. So when there's a combination with confusion, then you are thinking maybe some other part of the brain is also um, uh, dysfunctioning for whatever reason. Right. When you say part of the brain, what part of the brain deals with language and linguistics? So language is a very, very big part of your cortical brain. So it is almost all of the the left hemisphere is, is uh, covered by the language network. Um, different parts are doing slightly different things, but the whole network has to function for us to, you know, be fluent and, and operate at a at a normal um, level. Yeah, I mean, I, I have um, been fascinated how quickly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but how much research has gone by leaps and bounds into brain function in, I would say, the last 30 years. It just seems to have really gone forward quickly. So we have moved, of course, to brain imaging. So we, in the in the past, we could only study autopsy, uh, autopsied brains of people who had had problems in their life but then had died and, and the, the brains could be studied. But now, of course, for the last 30 years, we've been studying living brains, 
and we found that it's very, very complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, for aphasia, is there a treatment or a therapy or even a medicine or anything? So yes, there are therapies, but of course it depends on a little bit on the cause and of the symptoms. So the symptoms, as I said, can be very different. Um, but the good thing is, if the cause is not progressive, so it is not that your brain is deteriorating continuously, um, but you have a, a, a definite uh, sort of time-locked cause like a stroke, then a lot can be done by, by speech-language therapy. And the good news is that unlike what we used to think that after you know, a year, you kind of, uh, you're where you are and you won't improve anymore. It does seem that with continued targeted practice, you will continue improving. Uh, but spontaneous, your spontaneous in- environment doesn't always offer enough uh, stimulation to the language area, the particular language areas that need to be targeted to, to keep it happening uh, after about a year. Right. Uh, and lastly, Doctor Bruce Willis, sixty-seven years old. Is that significant? Is that in any way typical, according to studies, to say that's when it might start to affect you if you've had an injury or for whatever reason? It's it's not going to happen when you're thirty-seven, but sixty-seven is more likely. Is there is it age-related at all? Well, the the likelihood of aphasia, of course, goes up with age. Um, but particular diseases behave differently. So there are some diseases that can strike you at, at a young age and that can cause uh, a progressive aphasia. Uh, and of course, yes, we don't really know enough about this case right. to actually say anything about that particular circumstance. Right. But, but, but it's, is it possible then... Because they've talked about previous years, maybe two or three years only, where they would detect this kind of thing in in Bruce Willis and they were were helping him out on movie sets. Uh, Another director said he went back 10 or so years uh, and remembers seeing things that might have been aphasia. uh, My question, I guess, is is, can it start slow and, and mild and kind of build over years? Especially these progressive forms can do it, so right. they they can and they and you can compensate for because it's building up slowly. You kind of find workarounds so that you can cope with it for a long time without anybody noticing. Wow, this is so interesting. Uh, any discussion of brain function? Uh, as I said, I've been kind of reading more and more about it over the last few years. And it's, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, field, uh, doctor service. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Dr. Elizabeth service is a uh, professor and the graduate program chair in the department of linguistics and language at master. And we're talking about Bruce Willis and aphasia. So there's um there's the word. As, as, I, as I've talked on my podcast, each news story comes with a lexicon, and we quickly learn a language. Alopecia. What is that? Oh, Jada Pinkett Smith. Oh, okay. Right, right. Uh, aphasia. 
this is now this brain ailment. And when I when I talk about, um, you know, I'm 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 not a brain surgeon. I'm not a rocket scientist. Go figure. But I've been reading much about the brain, and it is the the research into the human brain has really gone by leaps and bounds in since imaging began and all these things and the ability, as Dr. Service said, to start studying uh, live brains. Uh, sounds a little Frankensteinish here, brain, but it's to, to study uh, live brains and, and imaging. And I always compare it to uh, other parts of the body. So there's there's a field of, of thought that says even psychology is completely um, unnecessary. I mean, if it's good for you to to lie on a couch and, and tell your life story to a therapist and it helps you, by all means. I, I'm not saying therapy isn't great, but there is a school of thought these days that says all of this dysfunction or malfunction we have in our in our thoughts, a depression, a worry, it's all just brain misfunction, dysfunction. And if you can fix it, um, you know, it's it's all a tiny little brain disease, if you will. And if you could fix it, you'd be better. You wouldn't have to, you know, lie there on the couch telling your stories. Uh, the problem with the brain is now, if you accept that, the problem with the brain is it's not um, it's not a bone in your finger. It's not a reset. It's not a. It's not even a heart or a kidney. What's the famous line in Young Frankenstein? Hearts and kidneys are tinker toys talking about the central nervous system and the brain. It's true. The brain, we know much about, much more, I should say, about how it functions and how it uh, works. It's just you can't go in there and, uh, you know, laser it. Or we'll, we'll just cut this and sew this together. You know, lobotomies just don't, that's not brain surgery. You know, it's it's really fascinating to hear about brain ailments. And, and, you know, I'm hoping, and there is brain surgery, of course, and, and, and there's much that can be done, but in some cases it's like, it's the brain. You don't, you don't necessarily get in there and poke around the way you would with a, a, another organ, you know, heart transplants. There's no brain transplants, at least not yet. We'll take a quick call before the break. Here's Rush on Kitchener today. Hey, Rush. Hi, Larry. Um, yeah, it's an it, it, interesting conversation. I've never heard of aphasia before i imagine we'll probably be hearing more of it i was just looking looking it up online here and the, the mayo clinic um has the most common it says the most common cause of aphasia is brain damage resulting from a stroke um and if i'm not mistaken strokes are caused by by blood clots so yeah with uh with all the the stuff that's been happening in the in the last few years i'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more about uh um, this and, and other, other, uh, uh, things like it, um, you know, because of the vaccinations and all. Thanks, Larry. Have a good day. All right. You too, Rush. And, and, you know, great call. Thank you. And the, the thing is, I don't know, or that we'd ever hear of it, but I don't recall Bruce Willis having a stroke. Those kinds of stories tend to get out in various entertainment shows. But what Dr. Service from McMaster just told us, that the brain injury can also be a cause. And I'm, and I'm speculating, please, just let me say that again. You know, we're, we're just, it's just you and me talking. We're not experts. We don't know what happened. We're not there. We're not his agent, his family, his, his colleagues. But it, 
it just seems more likely that somebody like Bruce Willis in an action movie, again, he, he doesn't do the big stunts necessarily, but he's got to, you know, jump off the box and roll on the floor and shoot the guy or whatever he's going to do next, you know, that, that these kinds of rough and tumble days on set would might cause uh, a head injury that might've been nothing, you know, and let's face it, when Bruce Willis got started, uh, you shake it off. You, you, you know, you, you get up and uh, keep going a little injury. What are you? Come on, you tough guy. Keep going. I mean, who knows if any of that happened? Okay. We'll go to Jason and then we'll go to break. Hey, Jason. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I just want to make a comment. I know Rush ended his, his uh, comment about, you know, the, we're going to see more blood clots because of the vaccine. I, I, I think um, the guest hosts need to do a better job of, of cutting those guys or girls off when they're making false statements like that because it doesn't give any credibility to the news station. I know uh, Mike has no problem doing that. Um, the former host of this okay. show had no problem doing that. Just, you know, just we got to watch what these people are saying. Um, that's all. All right. Okay, Jason, thanks. You know what? I, I got to be honest. I didn't hear that. I I heard, and, and, and if I misheard him or didn't hear him, then I apologize because I would have been on him about that. I thought he said we're going to be hearing more about blood clots and aphasia, which I think we are because a uh, high-profile celebrity has an ailment. You hear more about it until you don't. Did he say because of vaccines? Uh, because that was like, a, you know, to be clear, that was like a two percenter with one of the vaccines to talk about um, the possibility of blood clots. Uh, so I don't think we're going to hear more about blood clots. Did, did he really say because of the vaccine? Well, if he did, I'm sorry I didn't hear that part because I would have called him on it. But Jason, thank you for the call. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm Larry Fedorik, your guest host. We'll be back in a moment. Just because I'm in a bunny suit doesn't mean I haven't stumbled across a basic truth now and then. The feeling of being insufficiently appreciated is a common childhood lament. Bruce Willis, I think the movie was North. Maybe not one of his more famous roles. Uh, we're talking about Bruce Willis and aphasia here on Kitchener Today. I'm Larry Fedorik, guest hosting today, and uh, trying to l learn a little bit more about aphasia. And uh, just, a boy, memories of Bruce Willis. And I, I don't mean to sound like this. He's 67 years old. He's alive. He's doing fine. The story today that even a, about two or three years ago on a movie set, they already noticed that Bruce was just not understanding or forgetting. And there were all kinds of uh, things in his, in his uh, um, contract, clauses in his contract that would say, all right, he can only be on the set for two days. And the days can be this long. And then, uh, then he needs this much of a break. And it was... It was his people trying to get him through his battle with aphasia, whether they had that exact diagnosis at that time or not, we don't know. But uh, this has been going on knowingly in his circle for a, a few years at least. And I guess it's to the point where they feel, the Bruce Willis people feel, that it's it's time to tell everybody, and as as the announcement was yesterday, step back from uh, the movie career. Bruce Willis as a movie star, you know, it's interesting because I think some of us may remember Bruce Willis, the introduction to Bruce Willis on Moonlighting, Sybil Shepherd on television. 
and I'll tell you, it's not easy. Now today, movies, television, there's a there's a blur uh, between what these two things are today. But back then, you were a television star or you were a movie star. And the difference between the movie star and the television star I always heard was that if you saw one in the airport, if you saw a television star at the airport, you wouldn't feel scared to go up and say hello. But a movie is a movie star. So mo- television stars don't become movie stars that often. Bruce Willis did. But I, 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 th- I always thought that Bruce Willis, though he's a movie star, uh, not just an actor, but a movie star, because those two are different as well. That if I saw Bruce Willis uh, uh, at an airport, I would not be afraid to go up to Bruce Willis and go, "Hey, Bruce Willis, love your work. Don't want to bother you. You're great." You know that I, I, I you feel um, you could approach him, and I think there's there's that there that he always had this aura around him. That's why we like him. You know, relatable characters that he chose, whatever it is, just his his uh, demeanor. You know, I mean, there he is doing the Die Hard movies. And then there he is in some just bizarre role in uh, Pulp Fiction. And then there he is in a bunny suit uh, playing sort of the uh, an adult version of a, of a nine-year-old kid uh, in North. And then uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, I don't really recommend movies because it's personal taste. It's called Moonrise Kingdom. It's about three or four years old. And it's a Wes Anderson movie, and Bruce Willis is not the star of it. But he's in that. It's really what somebody would call a small movie. And he probably did it for scale or for next to nothing as a favor to his friends. And it's got like Francis McDormand is in it, Bill Murray, uh, Ed Norton. Uh, um, it's It's got a great cast that includes Bruce Willis. So you just find him. You just find him in movies. So I hope people said, I hope he's back and making movies again soon. I, I just hope he has a, a good rest of his life, whether it's 10, 20, 30, 40 years that he lives. I just hope it's, it's good. Even with aphasia, the cost of food and the food professor is going to join us just after one o'clock here on Kitchener today. Welcome to our second hour of Kitchener today for a Thursday. It is March the 31st. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't really buy into the lamb and lion uh, weather little, um, I I don't know what you call it. Uh, It's just a, it's a, it's, it's a weather hope. It's a weather saying it's a weather wish. I'm not coming up with the right word, but there we are. Um, Today is what today is what it is. And then, you know, it's the it's the tug of war. It's the push and pull of spring and and winter. And uh, winter seems to be winning slightly. But uh, on we go. Tomorrow will be April. And, uh, you know, we we can only go forward, I guess. There's my bit of sage advice. We can only go forward. Okay, man, here we go. Here we go. Still to come on the program. Yesterday, I was watching coverage of. um, the prime minister in Williams Lake, BC, where uh, they uh, used ground penetrating radar and detected signals of perhaps more remains of um, children, they assume, in residential schools, certainly graves that would have been unmarked. And throughout this process, I have always wondered how exactly the ground penetrating radar works and what it shows and how it's used and why it was first invented and and how it's used for this purpose. And I, I don't recall ever having it 
properly explained. So I thought, you know, let's find someone who knows what this is and and help us through this little part of the story. What is ground penetrating radar? We're going to talk about that after 1.30 with a professor from the University of Bristol. And that's coming up. Uh, now on the program, uh, food inflation. I don't have to tell you it's really bad right now. And I saw this post on Twitter the other day. And it was for like $42 lobster tray in Nova Scotia, where one might think lobster would be fairly inexpensive there. It was $42. And the uh, post, the tweet was from our next guest. He is a, um, he's a food professor, but he's actually a professor as well uh, of, um, of food, if you will and Agriculture and Management at Dalhousie University, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois joining us. Hello again, Dr. Charlebois. Good afternoon. Uh, I don't know if you remember, you and I have talked off and on since you were at uh, Guelph University even way back then when you were into food management and all these things. That's right. Good memory. Yeah, I was in Guelph for several years uh, from uh, 2009 to 2016, and I've been at Dalhousie University since uh, uh, since I left Guelph. Uh, great memories at Guelph. Uh, great, great institution as well. Now, uh, you you and I have talked in the past, sort of, kind of, almost year end and prediction of food prices, uh, and that's kind of a thing we do every every few months or every year, certainly. But tell me, have you seen anything like this? not just the rate of inflation, but how it seems to have hit all categories in grocery. Well, I mean, we monitor food prices uh, constantly and uh, for the last 15 years or so. And and every now and then there's a story that pops out affecting one category versus another. Uh, We expect, say, meat to go up and then dairy, and then after that could be bakery and uh, what's different this time around is that the entire store is impacted by uh, by inflationary pressures, really. Uh, everything is more expensive. Even the freezer aisle, where it's a safe place for people on a tight budget, uh, prices are actually going up. Not as much as other parts, but really... Uh, there's there's no safe place for 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 a consumer looking for deals right now, and and on top of that, because of COVID, because of what's happening with the food industry, uh, promotions are discouraged. So it's it's even tougher nowadays to to actually get any deal at this point. And I know the grocery stores may say, well, it's costing me more, and the and the delivery people say, well, it's costing me more, and they. The manufacturer, the processor, uh, has rising costs. I mean, is there a is there a finger of blame to point here anywhere, or is it just everywhere? Uh, it's it's everywhere. Of course, within the supply chain, uh, you can hear rumblings. Uh, some uh, some groups uh, enjoy blaming other groups, trying to position themselves as the. Uh, protector of of consumers, if you will. But at the end of the day, uh, you're seeing increases everywhere from farm to to store, really. I mean, uh, whether it's labor, fuel costs, 
supply chain delays, which ends up costing more, obviously. COVID, now this new uh, wave coming up, uh, this sixth wave is hopefully not going to complicate things, but Omicron really was a huge blow to the food industry because you had a lot of people, you know, staying home all at once. And so when you have perishable ingredients, uh, like you would find in the food industry, it it generates more waste and more costs. Here's a, a real basic wheat, and we have Canada, a huge wheat producer that had a drought last year, and the other two big ones in the world, Russia and Ukraine, and we all know what's happening between them. What about, you know, bread? Yeah, so uh, all eyes are on North America this year for sure to produce more. Uh, as far as wheat goes, we do produce a lot of wheat. And uh, all of the bread that we actually eat in Canada is, for the most part, manufactured in Canada uh, with Canadian wheat. So we wouldn't, we don't have to worry about that. The, the challenge, though, is, is, uh, is food affordability. We are expecting prices to continue to rise for quite some time. Uh, this year, we're at 7.4 percent. Uh, well, in February, Statistics Canada told us that our food inflation was at 7.4 percent. In the U.S., it's 8.6 percent. And historically, we've we've always caught up to to the Americans, so it, it's just not looking good. And so, for consumers out there, they really need to uh, to make sure that they are fully aware of prices. They get as much information. Uh, before showing up at the grocery store. I mean, I, I know you said promotions and things are discouraged, but they they do still happen uh, occasionally. And I know in the past, Dr. Charlebaugh, we've talked about trying to find the deals, the coupons, the, you know, cutting down on food, food waste, better food uh, planning, and all these things that can at least take some of the bite of inflation out. I guess those still apply, do they not? Oh, Absolutely. And I would certainly encourage uh, your listeners to use, uh, there are several apps uh, which are available to everyone in, in your region. Uh, Flip is, is the most used one for, for flyers. So you can compare uh, digital flyers. It's very easy to do, uh, F-L-I-P-P. It's well known. And you can basically browse uh, all flyers in, in a matter of minutes. So you'll, you're better informed in terms of how much you should pay for items on your list. Also, the one thing that is emerging is is that there are an increasing number of, of, of apps allowing people to become food rescuers. Uh, food that are about to expire or food that is not as fresh, uh, but those products are often sold at, at a discount, a huge discount, 30, 40, 50 to percent. So apps would be like Flash Food, Foodie Row, too good to go. I mean, all, all of these apps are very popular and v- available in your region. And and of, and of course, um, this is something that people have to do. You can't just—I uh, know people do—but you can't just wander down the street to your favorite store and and do your week's groceries. I think people have to maybe go two or three places maybe to get the grocery. You know, within reason, shop at several places to get the best prices. Exactly. You, you absolutely need to spend a little bit more time uh, on your strategy, and of course, that may mean that you 
you may want to visit more than one store. Uh, again, in, in your market, there's actually more competition than, say, in the Atlantic where we are. In the Atlantic, there's basically two options. you got Empire and Sobeys and, you, and, and Loblaws. That's it. Uh, but uh, if you actually look around and don't don't stay away from independence, uh, smaller stores sometimes they actually have very good deals. If you actually look very carefully and you know your prices, you'd be surprised. And what about uh, the player that all grocery have talked about for the last few years is Walmart? Um, is that still people assume that they're going to pay less? I guess that's the great marketing of Walmart. Where are they in the in the food chain, if you will? Well, they're, they're, I mean, I, w- I would say, <laughs> to be honest with you, about 15, 20 years ago, Walmart was a, a, a crappy food retailer. It wasn't good at it, but now it's getting better at it. And, and they're selling for about 16 or $17 billion worth of food now in Canada. And they aspire to become number one in the country. So they sell as much food as now Costco and Metro. And so they're out there. They're very competitive. But Walmart is a category killer. Uh, they won't necessarily have good deals on everything. They have good deals on some things. So, again, you've got to be careful, and you have to know your prices. Right, right. And I wonder how affected these food delivery um, apps and stores are going to be, or places, even uh, established stores that have home delivery, because that's an added expense. I don't see people going, uh, or at least maybe cutting back on those kinds of services in the next little while. Uh, no, but the convenience is, is very attractive. And so mm-hmm. uh, we are expecting uh, the uh, number of people to continue to order uh, online groceries, uh, actually both groceries and food service, to remain quite high uh, as we exit uh, covid but that being said, if you're looking for deals, uh, it's uh, it's not it's going to be online because you have to pay extra fees and and if fees aren't necessarily clear, it's probably baked into some of the uh, prices that you see online. Right, right. Uh, fascinating stuff, uh, Doctor Shanova. Before you go, can you just run through the names of of some of those apps you mentioned again, in case people didn't catch them? I know you said Flip was was a great one for going through yeah. flyers and things what what are some of the others that's right so flip for flyers and for uh food rescuing uh so buying food that is that that is about to expire and things like that Uh, so you have flash food you have food hero and too good to go those are the there are several ones but those are the three top ones and i would also recommend follow the food professor on uh twitter uh, the food professor, who is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Great to talk to you again. Thank you so much. You take care. Bye-bye. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, professor of food distribution and policy at the Faculty of Management and Agriculture at Dalhousie, similar position at uh, Guelph many years ago, as he stated. That's when I first kind of found uh, Dr. Charlebois, and I'm sure over the years you've seen him um, on network TV. And when I saw his tweet about that, that $42 lobster, um, I went, Oh yeah, we, it's time to talk to the food professor once again about food prices. Cause it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And I'm, I mean, I'm a single guy. I live alone right now. I was a single guy on me, uh, but you know, uh, it's pretty easy for me really, uh, 
to maintain and and do that. I wouldn't envy a you know a family of four or five people right now to try and do groceries on a budget. This is why I thought you know I I don't do the food services uh, uh, or or the grocery delivery. I just don't want to pay that extra fee. I understand the convenience. I understand that some people just can't get out, and and they need that that home delivery and willing to pay the little bit of a premium. But I see those kind of services taking a hit because uh, it's it's just extra cost, you know. And I, I'm down to if I'm if I'm at the grocery store and I'm I'm shopping, and I've got a budget in mind. And I've also got things I want in mind, as we all do. We have our our grocery list. I don't do, um, I think one of the things I've stopped doing is impulse. Ooh, big box of cookies. I I need those. No, you don't. Uh, But I will impulse um, a necessity if it's on sale. So I don't need bread. But look at that. It's a dollar less than it usually is right now. I'm going to buy that and just stick it in the freezer. Um, You know, things like that. I mean, if I have more more conscious of it over the last few months as food inflation has, has run rampant than I ever have been uh, before. We'll get you the phone numbers and uh, take some of your calls in just a minute here. I want to know what you're, what you're noticing. Are you paying more? Are you, have you changed your habits? Is your special favorite just unaffordable now? What have you noticed as far as food inflation goes? We'll talk about all of that and more on Kitchener Today, I'm Larry Fedoric, guest hosting. Back in a moment. Still to come on our program today, what exactly is ground-penetrating radar? We know the way it's being used today, but where did it start? Also, where are we on masks We'll update that with experts in those two particular areas. Uh, Also later on, the grandparent scam. People still falling for it. What is it exactly? We'll get to that topic as well. Right now we're talking food inflation, uh, the cost of groceries. Our guest previously, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, is a food professor, a big fan of his, if you follow him on on Twitter, he kind of tells you about these apps and things you can use and other uh, tips to uh, try as best you can. It's really tough these days, but try as best you can to keep your grocery bill down. And if inflation is 7%, I don't know that just smart shopping is going to save you that 7%, but it, it might save you three or four or uh, help uh, a little bit. Adam has been waiting to get on the show. Hello, Adam. Hi, how are you? Good, Adam. How are you? Not too bad. Just uh, wanted, to, wanted to make a comment here about uh, you know, you know food planning and, and meal planning and, and going to several different grocery stores. And, and what I've okay. found is that it becomes difficult or even you know, problematic trying to find all these stores that have the different deals. And you end up spending most of your day in a half a tank of gas getting get, getting all these deals when, you know, it's just easier to go to one store. Um, mm-hmm. The savings, you know, become negligible at that point. So I, I, I it, it's, it's six of one, half dozen of the other, really. It, it can be. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you, Adam. Thanks for the call. Which one is cheaper, six or, six or half a dozen? I don't know. what. Um, but 
<laughs> no, seriously. I, that's why I said earlier within reason, you know, uh, if you can shop at different stores, really. And Adam's right. If you got to burn a half a tank of gas just to, you know, cash in your coupons and save your little savings at another store, it's not worth it. But it's just, if it's convenient, if I'm at the convenience store and I feel like, um, well, I would get that box of crackers, I probably should make the effort to walk around the corner to the grocery store where the box of crackers is going to be a little bit less. I mean, I don't know if that's a good example, probably not, but that kind of thing where, um, you know, I know people who will make their weekly trip to Costco and buy all they can. And then for certain things, then on the way home, we'll stop at the, their grocery store and pick up other items. Uh, so this is the weekly plan, if you will. And as I said, we're convenient, we're reasonable to try and shop around a little bit and, and see who's got the best deal. Yeah. But you're not going to, you know, you're not going to drive across country just to save a couple of bucks on a, on a pound of hamburger, you know, but um, it's, it's, there's so many, um, so many factors and, you know, the weather being one, and we hope, I mentioned the drought in Canada last year. Um, you know, if, if my point on that was, and it was interesting to hear from the food professor that most of the bread we have in Canada is produced in Canada. Uh, but the other portion of this is there's other people in the world that grow wheat. You know, if we ever had to, we knew who else grew wheat. And when three of the biggest wheat producers have some sort of problem, be it a drought or a war, then, uh-oh, where are we going to get our bread? It's not just us. Obviously, it's 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 United States, it's Europe. It's, a, you know, it's feeding the world here that we're talking about. So um, we're just a, a, another another bit of inflation that we hope to get through, although the food professor said it's going to be it's going to be a little while that we kind of have to bite the bullet instead of our favorite food. Uh, coming up in the program, what is ground penetrating radar? What is it exactly? Mark Horton from the University of Bristol is coming up in just a few minutes here on Kitchener Today. Still to come on our show today, masks, where are we? No, this is not a repeat of 2020. It is going to be an update on masking and wearing masks and uh, efficiency of masks. Feel we'll have to do that, and we'll do that after 2 o'clock. We'll talk to the University of Waterloo about that, and also something uh, next hour called the Grandparent Scam. It might sound familiar, I think, from a, a news and information point of view, once you sort of hear what this scam is targeting seniors and uh, we'll talk to uh, can age about the grandparent scam and just, you know, by way of reminder is to, um, you know, watch out for this kind of stuff. And when we talk about scams online, telephone, what have you, I think a lot of us go, Oh, come on. How do people fall for that? You know, they're pretty sophisticated these days. I can see how some people might fall for that. So we'll, we'll talk about that grandparent scam aimed at seniors and get a little refresher and an update for you on that story after two o'clock. Right now on Kitchener today, I was watching this story in the coverage yesterday of the Prime Minister Williams Lake, British Columbia, visiting First Nations there where ground penetrating radar had found the possibility of more 
graves in what was once a residential school site or one was right nearby. And as we talk about more of these discoveries over the last couple of years, especially, we keep hearing this term ground penetrating radar. And I, I, I thought, gee, I've never really understood what that is or, or had it explained as to why it works or why we even have ground penetrating radar. Our guest is a professor of archaeology at the University of Bristol. He's Mark Horton, and he joins us now. Hello, Professor Horton. Hi, Larry. Great to be on your show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for joining us. What? So what ground penetrating radar, it cannot have been invented to find um, bodies and bones, or was it? No, not really. Um, I mean, it's been around since the mid-70s, really. And um, it, was, it was actually devised to look at the structure of soil and ice. Um, some of the early uh, applications were in the, actually in the Antarctic. And how it works is sending literally radio waves down through the soil, and then an antennae then picks up the reflection of these radio waves. So it's a very straightforward, quite no magical technology involved. Um, it involves basically sending radio pulses down into the ground. So around since the 70s, and it still basically works on the same technology? Yes, the technology hasn't changed. What really has changed is the software. And uh, the early attempts basically sent you a model, like a section, like you cut a section through the soil. And if you looked at that section, you could see where things were reflecting. So, for example, for burials, they might provide a target or anomaly that then reflects the radio waves in a different way to the, the soil around. What the new technology is doing is enable us to transform those sections into plans because you get lots of reflections but when you start looking at plans you begin to see patterns horizontal patterns in the ground um, in particular in three dimensions so you can go down in slices under the ground at different depths a few inches a foot two foot three foot four foot however powerful your antenna is and look at patterns at that level, like literally slicing the ground off with a with a bulldozer. So, so it's the software would then have uh, be able to create this imagery as you are um, operating the the radar. Is that what you're saying? That, yes, that's right. So you have to yeah. do a survey, and then you then upload that this new imagery called time slice imagery onto a computer, and it takes a bit of time for the computer to trundle through all the data, uh, but. Absolutely. So, so how we tend to do these surveys is in, say, grids of, say, um, a 30 meters square. And we go backwards and forwards, like almost plowing a field, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, moving the antennae maybe 30 or 40 centimeters each time. So the poor person pushing it literally walks kilometers. Um, but then you can collect all that data, put it into the computer and see what you get. So if you have a site, say, covering 50 or 100 hectares, you can see there's an awful lot of work to be done. <laughs> Literally so thousands of kilometres somebody has to walk push, pushing this machine. My goodness. Now, if you are pointing these radio waves down and they are penetrating the soil, why don't they just penetrate 
a shin bone or an old shoe or whatever else is down there in the ground? Is that a setting on the radio waves that they will, instead of penetrating it, they will reflect it? Well, they will reflect some things which have mass, big mass, like like iron or bits of a large stone or something will give you an anomaly. Um, but but burials give a particular type anomaly that you can begin to recognise on these traces. And so it's really the skill in interpretation that, that archaeologists and others have used, the police use this often, in order to work out whether there might be a buried body, a grave in there or not. But... One of the issues is that it's not 100% certain. Um, And so really the only way to be certain of someone down there um, is to subsequently do an excavation project to actually excavate it and confirm it. You know, I've seen lots of claims, but when the archaeologists go and actually do the forensic archaeology there, often it just turns out to be a large stone or, or something like that. So we have to be right. a bit careful. And I think the people doing the work in these schools are, are very cautious, quite rightly so, that it is indicative that there are burials, but it's not 100%. Right. And, and, and most say that then we at least know where we have to excavate. That's really what this has done so far, right? It just tells you, it just gives you a better area to work in afterward. Yes, I mean, it's obviously impossible to excavate 200 acres, 200 hectares of land. So it gives you particular targets with which you can work. And there may be other methods in which one can then work in conjunction with ground penetrating radio, particularly um, soil science, and look at geochemical traces in the soil as well as another possible indicator. So before you dig, you might be able to use other methods to, as it were, increase the probability that that you're in the right place. This all sounds very expensive. Well, not really. (laughs) Mm. Um, And the equipment is is actually quite cheap. Um, You know, we're talking for a full range of antennae in the region of 50,000 Canadian dollars, something like that. Um, But... It's the time that's the expensive bit. Um, There are various ways of mechanising it. You can pull it behind a truck or whatever. Um, But it's it's the time of walking backwards and forwards to get the resolution that's sufficient to be able to identify if there's a a burial there or not. Right, right. And I certainly didn't mean to imply that, oh, it's too expensive, we shouldn't search for the answers to very important questions. I didn't mean to imply that, that that money rules here. But, for example, in in BC, the Prime Minister here in Canada allotted over $2 million for the next phase of this because it takes money, was my point, and it does take money. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it, it's mostly labour and technical technicians cost as much as the equipment itself and the speed that, that, that's necessary for these kind of surveys. And um, there are difficulties like vegetation and, uh, on the ground that might need to be cleared in order for the, um, the antennae, which is mounted on a cart, to move across the ground, ground level. So there's ground preparation that may also be needed for accurate for an accurate survey. I would have grown up thinking of archaeology, uh, and I know it does this as well, searching for the answers to questions from centuries and centuries and centuries ago. But more and more you hear about archaeology as it's applied to more recent history, 100 years ago, maybe even in some cases in police matters, you know, five, ten years ago, whatever, 
Is that correct? Is, is the field yes. of archaeology really changed? Absolutely. I mean, it's a field of archaeology which we refer to as contemporary archaeology. Um, mm-hmm. And archaeology is a method, um, a technique, a series of ideas and theories of how we investigate the past. And the past is yesterday. Uh, so we can use the techniques to investigate yesterday's past or, you know, conflict archaeology often is a really important area where we're looking at war graves in places like Bosnia and so forth, where there's been a very successful or Iraq or Iran, uh, where this has been used uh, from very recent pasts, going all the way back, obviously, to the deep Paleolithic, where... Again, people have been using these kind of technologies. Um, and, I mean, in particular, things like DNA has become a massive tool in the last few years for archaeologists in order to try and understand the past. Ancient DNA, which could be recent or it could be very old. So, you know, mm. these are the sort of techniques we use. DNA in soil, we don't even need bones anymore. We can recover the DNA directly wow. from the soil itself. Wow. And then, of course, after that, like, for example, in, in the First Nations and residential schools area, you do then, and I don't know if that's be your area or you pass it off, but you need the matching information or the data that might be somewhere in an old file somewhere. But your job is to find all you can from the soil, if you will. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you know, the decision needs to be made um, if one is going to try and identify these individuals, um, whether DNA is the appropriate method or not. There's massive sensitivity about recovering people's DNA uh, without their permission, uh, particularly in the United States, where First Nation groups are very, very hesitant of allowing DNA to be taken from them. Um, Mm. And, you know, there are ethical issues about this, uh, which, you know, may be the need to identify the individuals versus the need to, um, um, you know, preserve them and and respect them. So those are discussions that will have to be had further down the line, I'm sure. Well, there's always, it's, it's science ahead of ethics, a lot of the times we know, you know, we, we know how to do something before we've decided whether we should do it or not. And I kind of, I, I kind of see you going there a bit. Let me ask you lastly, you said forensic archaeology, that to me almost sounded like a redundancy is that's, <laughs> is archaeology almost a field of forensics, so to speak, or could you, could you make that statement? Well, or, or maybe we do it the other way around. That, that, that often forensics is a subfield of archaeology. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, for many years now, archaeologists have been using their techniques with police departments. Um, I mean, often what we're looking at is very ephemeral traces, and the, uh, the police have often gone into these, often these investigations, in a very haphazard, rather heavy-handed way. Um, but they've had a lot to learn from archaeological approaches where we're very sensitive in doing scientific investigations, and we've been doing it for decades. And so really modern archaeology work hand-in-hand with police forces and forensic investigators, war crime investigators, and so forth. It's a lot of our bread and butter nowadays. Yeah, it's amazing. Fascinating uh, talking with you, Professor. Thank you so much. It was a delight. (laughs) Thank you. It was a delight for me. Mark Horton is Professor of Archaeology at the University of Bristol, ground-penetrating radar uh, explained radio waves, uh, I guess. And, um, 
no, not I guess. That's what we just learned. And the the imagery, the software, and the technology there that's available now uh, to interpret, I think that's been the growth. I mean, the technology of, of the ground-penetrating radar itself, as you just heard, was bas- has basically been the same since the 1970s. But, but the ability to read it seems to have really improved with software and things like that. And this is what this is how the remains, sadly, um, uh, have been detected in various locations across Canada and and in the United States, where we hear about our Canadian stories, of course. Uh, these um, stories of unmarked graves, potentially of residential schools, nearby residential schools, and, and grounds that would have surrounded these schools. We know the schools were there. We know the history of them. Some of them are still there. Residential school program went uh, uh, up until uh, early 1990, I, I believe, it was right around there. I mean, it's shocking when you hear the dates of how long the residential school program went. Uh, you know, there's no excuse. Well, like, well, it was 1920. We didn't know any better or whatever it was. People did know better then. But you think even later when people became more aware that this, this program would have disappeared, it did not. And through the ground penetrating radar, they're able to find, I guess, evidence of um, the way these particular schools worked and the way they didn't work for indigenous peoples. And then from there now, as our professor, our guest told us, uh, and as we've heard on news reports of these, is next is excavation, which is which would be direct evidence, which would actually be finding the the uh, remains uh, potentially of former students and and uh, people in involved in the residential school system. So then then to determine who they are, and this is part of what has been this mission uh, for not only truth and reconciliation, but to discuss this whole issue and even to send delegates to Rome because the Catholic Church is one of the big players in the residential school system. Uh, there was you know, governments and church and a lot of the other church groups have since apologized. The Catholics have been the last holdout in a true uh, apology and in some cases reparation for the residential school system. And again, they were one of the biggest players in it. So part of this, part of it is discovery Second part is now, well, let's ask the Catholic Church for the records, for what they know, for an apology, for so on and so forth. As our guest earlier said, it's, it's, there's a lot that needs to be done. This is a step-by-step program of how do, we, um, how, do, how do we find some sort of truth and peace to this particular story uh, with what we know so far and what we are, what we are learning. Ground-penetrating radar is really just here's what we always thought was going on. And now we have evidence of it. Now can we excavate? Should we excavate? Do we get DNA? Are there records we can match to these remains? Can we have some closure for uh, descendants, for uh, indigenous peoples in general? Can we at least put a little closure on who these people are and, and maybe give them the proper respect of their lives and their passing? So my, it's a, it's a massive story, I guess, you know, as we know, and it uh, continues. But I sure appreciated the clarification there of the archaeology of it from our professor of archaeology in uh, University of Bristol, Mark Horton, who uh, joined us. Uh, we'll get you the phone numbers and talk more about this. And if you have thoughts on this in- entire story and share them with us, please, on Kitchener Today. I'm Larry Fedorik.
guest hosting. We'll be back in a minute or two. Thank you for staying with the show. I'm your guest host, Larry Fedorik. Coming up on the program after 2 o'clock, we're going to talk about masks. We're going to talk to a professor at the Great Lakes Institute of Environmental Research, University of Waterloo. Interesting article about what we've learned about masks, about what they're made of, how they fit, all these kinds of things. And I, I've, I have not, through COVID, I, I've been a poster boy for how to how to go through a pandemic in a lot of ways. I pat myself on the back, yay, good for me. Distancing, isolating, blah blah blah, hand washing. I actually, and I'll, I'll admit this right now, I still wipe down my groceries. Yeah, uh, how many people stop doing? It? I still do that. Uh, so I guess I'm just going to stick with these habits for a while, including masking. But we've learned a lot about the masking. And that's who we're going to talk with, University of Waterloo. That's what we're going to talk about after 2 o'clock. And then the, the grandparents' scam that some seniors, uh, seniors are obviously targeted by this so-called grandparents' scam. We'll get an update on that and talk more about that after uh, 2 o'clock. I got, I got just a minute or two here. Can I just spend the minute or two on uh, Will Smith, Chris Rock? Boy, in in the big picture of things, how important is this little thing? I get it. It's not. It's not um, my uh, uh, latest podcast. I have a podcast called Later That Same Life, which you can check out new episodes on Thursdays, wherever you get your podcasts. And I have a YouTube channel with the podcast on it. It's called Later That Same Life. And my latest one is about first world problems and how not so much what the first world problems are, although I do touch on that. But other other than that is like. People seem to kind of use that as a condescending remark. Oh, first world problems. And it's a big argument. You know, do you know what's going on in the world, Larry? Do you not watch the news? You're talking about Chris Rock, Will Smith, who cares? I get it. I'm I'm able to carry several thoughts and concerns, several thoughts and concerns in my mind. I'm able to kind of differentiate and rank where the problems uh, amount to a hill of beans in this world. I kind of understand that. So <laughs> big preamble preface to uh, mentioning even Will Smith, Chris Rock, I get it. But it's, you know, the more I thought about it, and I said on Monday's show here when I was here that we're not going to be talking about it tomorrow. Here we are Thursday, and yes, we are. A couple of reasons. Um, One is that um, Will Smith did apologize to Chris Rock, not in person. Uh, There was some talk that they had talked on the telephone or met or talked or some, they had not. Chris Rock says, no, I've not talked to Will Smith. Uh, Chris Rock had a show, a comedy tour a show that he was on, and, and that was booked long before he ever did the Oscars. Uh, tickets for that through resellers went through the roof. Incredible. Uh, he addressed it on stage uh, with two shows, basically saying the same thing each time, that he's still processing the entire situation. And uh Good. I mean, if I would apply to anybody in the way they handled themselves in this entire thing, it's Chris Rock. And I'm I'm predisposed because I've always been a fan. Um, years ago, when I was in like 100 years ago, I was in Los Angeles on business and we were going to tack on some vacation days and go to Vegas. So we go to the comedy store the night we're leaving for Vegas. We go to the comedy store first. And... Uh, they, they come on stage and they go, ladies and gentlemen, here's a young man. He's doing the Arsenio Hall show tomorrow. It's going to be his first television appearance ever. He's a, a bright, upcoming young star, Chris Rock. 
And I was like, wow, okay. So, and he was really funny. And the next night we're in Vegas and I leave the casino and run up to the hotel room and turn on our studio hall. And I saw Chris Rock and he debuted and he, he did kind of a controversial joke and he caught some flack over it. And I thought, boy, that's going to end his career. And it didn't. And so I've always had an affinity for him, having seen him way back when on his first, you know, the night before his first big night, trying out his act on us at the comedy store in Los Angeles on Sunset Boulevard. It was kind of cool. But he's handled himself so well. I, th- I don't think Will Smith has. has. Uh, there was a talk that the Academy did come up to Will Smith after the incident and ask him to leave, and he refused. In a normal situation, that's when security comes by. I guess they did not. I don't think they should take it as his Oscar away, but I think they should take his membership to the Academy away. Uh, and at some point... I mean, look about, look at this. Here's a guy who who gets incensed to violence over a, 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 a lame remark aimed at his wife. Uh, so incensed to violence, to action, to slap somebody. And 20 minutes later, he's weeping and apologizing. I'm like, man, I don't know what the meds are to put you more on an even keel, but get them. I get that actors are very emotional and up and down. That's what sometimes makes them great actors. But the range of emotion you just went through in 20 minutes, man, that's not healthy. That is not healthy. Speaking of healthy, masks. Okay, we'll get to that after 2 o'clock and the grandparents scam all in our next hour of Kitchener Today. Well, I'd like to say uh, go Caitlyn Jenner, go. I'm uh, very accepting of what has been happening to the former Bruce Jenner and Caitlyn Jenner over the years and uh, applaud the bravery. And uh, today is actually, and you may notice flags in the region are raised today for the, it's actually transgender day of visibility. And I remember uh, the, the seeing this flag first at a, um, at a pride day when I was walking around and just, you know, seeing the sights and I noticed somebody was draped in a flag that wasn't the rainbow flag. It was kind of, and it, well, it wasn't kind of, it was top to bottom and there's a a big powder blue banner. And then there's sort of a a coral pink banner and then there's white and then there's the pink and the blue again. And I was like, Oh, what's, what's this flag? And they said, and they said, it's transgender flag. And I'm like, Okay. And, and so I've been aware of it for a couple of years, but this flag, if you see it around the region today, flags, various areas, they are being raised today in Kitchener-Waterloo area for Transgender Day of Visibility. I was just reminded by that Caitlyn Jenner story, if you were listening, that uh, Caitlyn Jenner, uh, Jenner will appear on Fox News as a commentator, uh, and Caitlyn Jenner now also a failed Republican candidate for um, – governor of California. And I've gotten nothing, well, not that much against Republicans per se, but uh, Fox News, that's just another uh, slice of Republican that, um, you know, I'll support Caitlyn Jenner through uh, a lot of things, but not this. (laughs) You want to go on Fox News? Okay, well, uh, that admiration is over, at least in the field of politics. So good luck with all that. There you go, Caitlyn Jenner. I will not be watching. Actually, I don't. Do I get Fox? I think I get the Fox channel. Yeah, I do. I do. I when I it's all up in my news channel section there. When I flip through it, uh, 
I noticed Fox News and um, uh, there's a couple of channels, you know, when you flip to a channel, it's like the blue screen, subscribe to this channel. And um, I know that's not Fox because I would always remember go, no, I'm not going to do it. I would, you know, talk back to the TV and say, I'm not subscribing to Fox News. You may. And that's fine. If that's your thing. Still to come on our show, we are going to talk about the grandparents scam. Uh, news today of yet another person, I believe it was out of uh, Toronto, the senior citizen who fell for it to the tune of, I think, 25 grand before kind of waking up and going, oh, oh, I think I've been scammed uh, and uh, want to r- raise a little awareness and talk about that. We'll talk with a group called CanAge about that after uh, 2.30. Uh, right now, we're going to kind of, I guess, update masking. Uh, mask mandates are gone, but masks are not. And it depends really who you are, how you feel about finally not having to wear a mask or I don't care. Uh, that's more what I say. I don't care. I'm going to wear a mask for quite a bit longer yet, at least in particular set of settings where distancing is a little tougher or, you know, indoors, those kinds of things. Um, we're going to talk about that and what we've learned about masks also with our guest professor at the Great Lakes Institute of Environmental Research at the University of Waterloo, Ken Drulliard joining us. Hello, Professor Drulliard. Hi, Larry. Uh, thanks for having me on uh, your show. Uh, I will make a quick cor- correction. I'm from the University of Windsor, not Waterloo. Windsor. Okay. Um, somewhere where I must have transcribed the notes, um, I, uh, I gave you a, a job at Waterloo. So... <laughs> There you go. Well, it's a great institution as well, so <laughs> it's okay. not much of an insult as, at all. <laughs> as is the University of Windsor, and uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, – as soon as you came on, I went, he's going to correct me. What did I say wrong? There we go. Uh, University of Windsor. Um, so uh, in, in masking, first of all, before we get to what we've learned about masks and masking, um, is it time to keep – or still time to wear the masks, keep them on for a while, do you feel? Uh, absolutely. And as you had already indicated, uh, you know, maybe mask mandates aren't in place, but COVID-19 is still around and we're still suffering from uh, waves of new variants that have greater infectivity. Uh, the newest uh, variant of Omicron is even more infectious than the first Omicron variant. Uh, so uh, these features are all happening and masks are probably more important today just because we don't have the mask mandates in place. Uh, so that means the, you know, how much virus is getting released into the airways from people who are no longer wearing masks is increased that much more. Now, I always heard from the very beginning, I always remembered a mask, me wearing a mask is protecting you more than it is me. Is that still the case? Uh, that's absolutely true, and that is why mass mandates were such a useful public health measures, because when everybody wears a mask, that uh, escalates the protective value over uh, individuals wearing a mask just on their own. And he could simply do this as an exercise, if a standard medical procedural mask. Uh, if you're wearing that mask and you're shedding virus, you're cutting about 50% of the virus that you would be uh, shed it into the air. If a second person who's receiving that is wearing a mask, they're cutting about 50% of uh, the virus that's getting into their interior. So that's, you know, a quarter 
of the, the total virus load uh, within the system. If, the, if one person is not wearing a mask, then you basically increase uh, potential virus load by 100%. I, I, you know, the bad me thinks that, so why am I wearing a mask to help you who's not wearing a mask? Why should I have to be the one carrying the burden here? You know, I mean, that's a terrible attitude and I, I still wear a mask, but I think sometimes people feel like that. It's like, Hey, we, we should all be doing this. Well, I guess there's, yeah, there's two perspectives of this. There's, there is mask as protection for all, and that's where mask mandates kick in. And then admittedly, a society has moved beyond that, at least in Ontario, we, we removed most man, mask mandates, except in a few settings, like in the clinical settings, and uh, many of the universities have extended their mask mandates, at least until the end of the uh, term. Uh, but you're entirely correct. Uh, it ultimately is a personal choice. Uh, and uh, one that's based on your own risk assessment about uh, uh, whether or not uh, you're likely to become infected or not based on wearing a mask and, and again, how you value uh, your contribution to, uh, you know, uh, reducing the risk for society as a whole. So, so both of those factors come into play. They don't have to be at odds with one another. Mm-hmm. True enough. Uh, two masked men in an elevator having a discussion the other day. One of them's me. And the other gentleman said, you know, I'm going to be wearing a mask for a long time. It doesn't matter what they say. I'm going to keep a mask on. I said, me too. He said, you know, because I've got, I've got grandparents that I I'm taking care of and I like to visit. And I was like, yeah, that's the other part of this is who you're in contact with people who are more susceptible for various reasons. I think you have to keep all that in mind. That's right. So, so different individuals vary in their vulnerability to COVID-19 and other infectious diseases. Again, based, you know, some individuals uh, are older uh, or immunocompromised. Uh, so, their risk factors are always higher or maybe higher than your own. So, those are things to consider in your choices. Are people still wearing the wrong masks? Um, I mean, I, I don't. I see most of them are the surgical type of mask. It's the one I wear. Um, is it still the best one? I mean, other than N95? Yeah. So as you as you sort of just indicated, uh, the N95 is sort of the gold standard. And, and that's what's required for use by healthcare professionals who are definitely being exposed to viral load in their workplace settings. So they need that maximum exposure. Now, as things sort of progressed through the pandemic, uh, initially when we started the pandemic, there was a great deal of concern about the availability of uh, masks for healthcare workers. Uh, and uh, most healthcare uh, agencies were recommending that people adopt either cloth-based masks or uh, disposable, uh, you know, surgical-style uh, medical masks. And then uh, you know, as uh, as our manufacturing facilities and the supply lines started to catch up with PPE demand, uh, coupled with increased infectivity of some of the variants such as Delta and Omicron, we sort of started to switch uh, the advice to include more protective masks that included things like KN95s and N95s. 
Uh, and uh, clearly, uh, you know, just prior to the rise of the Omicron variant, there was a lot of, uh, rec- you know, health-based recommendations suggesting to upgrade uh, your mask where possible. Uh, again, I, I think this is all based on personal risk. Uh, and uh, essentially different masks have different performance attributes. Uh, but even the, you know, the standard medical masks and even most uh, two-ply cloth masks uh, prove to be quite effective in terms of reducing uh, viral infections. How effective is just adding a second mask, whatever it is? So uh, our group has done some research on this in conjunction with McMaster University, Dr. Catherine Klass, uh, and we were looking at overmasking. So taking your basic procedural medical mask and putting over top of it a, a well-fitted uh, two-ply uh, cotton mask. And that combination of masks it got us really close to the N95 standard. So in that wow. combination, we were able to get up to 90% of a viral size particle uh, filtration efficiency. And, and I know it's um, maybe maybe it sounds re- or just repeating what we've heard for two years, but just the way they fit and the way you wear them. I mean, my surgical mask has the wire. I can I can pinch the nose area. I can make sure it goes below the chin. I, I guess the way it fits around the ears everywhere. That's all important. That's absolutely correct. So, you know, uh, much of the sort of the, the media information about masks has been really focused on mask type and the materials they're made out of. But the simple truth is, is you know, the, the primary feature about a mask is, is whether it fits you or not and whether it seals across the face. That's all along your, your cheeks, the, the top of the nose and under the chin. Uh, and that's really uh, sort of the downfall of uh, the, the kind of the, the standard procedural medical masks that we find today, because they have fairly weak elastic uh, loops that hook around your ears. And oftentimes you can't get a good uh, seal around the face. So you'll notice gaps around the cheeks uh, and under the chin. And uh, oftentimes you can get between 38 and 50 percent of the air coming into the mask interior that's not filtered as a result of poor fit. Wow. Uh, Just on my personal note, for a few months early, I had a mask. It fit so good. And it was out of, I want to say a neoprene, you know, kind of the wetsuit material. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, and it, and it, the, the way the material sort of hugged your face and everything, but it, it, the material itself, I mean, it, I don't know what it was letting in or letting out. I never felt confident in it. Yeah, so neoprenes tend to test uh, fairly well. We didn't include uh, neoprenes in our own research. Uh, our research tended to focus on cotton materials, uh, okay. largely because they were among the most common uh, homemade masks that were made. Cottons are you know, one of the most widely available materials uh, available to home sewists. Uh, one of the things that were surprising to us is we sort of expected that there would only be a very limited number of types of fabric that would produce a decent mask. And uh, we ended up selecting nine 
consumer categories of cottons to test the mass performance. And we found that most of those uh, material types did a pretty good job. In fact, uh, most uh, cotton two-ply masks uh, did about the same performance as your medical procedural mask, so somewhere around 50 to 60% uh, viral size particle filtration efficiency. Uh, again, uh, the, the, the more clear delineator was how well that mask fit you. Right. Well, and, and another key thing you mentioned there on the cotton mask was the two-ply. I think that's a, a key point. Yes, and uh, obviously if you have more materials that are overlaying one another, that gives a greater uh, poss- uh, chance of entrapping some of the viral particles between the fabric layers. It misaligns pores that are within the fabric layer, so it does a better job of filtration. But there's a sort of a there's a diminishing point of diminishing returns. So after about three or four layers, uh, you don't really see any further performance gains in the filtration. So what sort of happens there, what we believe happens, is the the draping features of the mask and its ability to conform to, to the face becomes compromised. So there, there then becomes more leaks as opposed to higher filtration. Oh, interesting. And, and I, I don't think your research covered this. I'm just going to ask you out of the blue. A combination of mask and face shield, which you see sometimes, I've seen that at medical appointments where the doctor or nurses have both. Some cases in retail, I've seen, at least early on, I've seen both. Did that face shield do anything extra, in your opinion? Well, they they serve two different purposes. The mask, of course, is protecting your lungs. And the face shield is uh, protecting uh, mucous membranes around your eye, for example. So uh, right. the face shield does have some effect in terms of uh, blocking droplets. But in terms of uh, blocking uh, truly airborne particles, uh, the research has shown that it has almost no effect. This is, uh, this is fascinating uh, work and research that you've done. And, Professor, if you ever want to get over to Waterloo, I, I, may, I may know someone. I can make a call. But from the University of Windsor, thank you so much, Professor. <laughs> well, thanks so much. And uh, I'll take you up on that offer at Waterloo. <laughs> Okay, there you go. Uh, Ken Drulliard is uh, with the University of Windsor, and I, uh, in error, said University of Waterloo at the beginning. Uh, he's a professor at the Great Lakes Institute of Environmental Research, University of Windsor. And uh, during that interview, I think I counted a couple of times where he said that's correct. So really, uh, I think I had more corrects than errors in that particular discussion. But, uh, you know, I've, who's keeping score? Well, me. But other than that, who is? Uh, A little more on masks. We'll wrap up this discussion when we return with more of Kitchener Today. I'm the guest host, Larry Fedorik, and uh, you can reach the show, 519-570-2545. 1-800-570-5715 is toll-free, star 570 on your cell phone. We were talking masks with our professor from uh, the Great Lakes Institute at the University of Windsor. And I know nobody cares about this but me, but I was like, how did I call it Waterloo from the University of Windsor? It, it must have been a mistake in a note that was sent to me. And uh, no, it was me. I was looking for someone else to blow. I know nobody cares about me, but we got it right, and it's the University of Windsor, and it was my bad. And I'm going to feel bad about that the rest of the day. But that's okay. That's my job. That's what I do. All right. So we're talking about masks. Uh, here's Alex joining the program. Hello, Alex. Yeah, hi. Um, 
will you guys have a link to this study on your website? I don't know that, but uh, there is a great article that I was referencing about this study, and we'll certainly try and get that up there. Yeah, because yeah, so uh, I would like uh, to do, it, do an in-depth dive into that because uh, I'm in the uh, abatement business, so we do asbestos removals. So I, I know a fair about about mass. Asbestos is asbestos particles are much much larger than a virus particle, much much larger. Right. You cannot walk onto a job site. Where there's a possibility of the of the asbestos to be airborne, a possibility with an N95 mask, not a chance, because it will go through that mask. Okay, you have to wear if it's possible that it's friable, it's get airborne. You must wear a form-fitting full face shield with outside uh, ventilators. All right, that's wow. what you got to wear. If it's if it's friable, if it's definitely airborne, then you have to wear a full suit with oxygen tanks. That's to keep out a particulate that's way larger than a virus. So that's why I wanted to do in-depth study on, on his uh, uh, a, a deep dive into his study because just, I mean, I'm not a virologist, uh, I'm not a biologist, but I do know a lot about masks and I do know a lot about particulate sizes and what masks can handle. So his, that, wow, that's everything he was saying sounded very strange to me. Really? Okay. Well, it's um, um, the article I looked at is, is on a site called The Conversation, and it's uh, What's Next with Face Masks, and it is University of Windsor, uh, and it's Ken uh, Drulliard. So if you want to look that up, you may be able to find it. If not, we'll try and get you that link on our website. All right? Thank you, Alex. Uh, just dipping into something quickly. Can we do Dan real quickly? Dan? You had a comment about Will Smith. Yes, uh, just like your latest one there, where you were talking about Chris Rock being on Arsenio Hall. Yeah, I've never seen I've never seen that one. But have you seen the newest video that's trending with when Will Smith was on on uh, Arsenio Hall? No. Well, he was there years ago, and uh, it was just a joke he was making too. Anyway, talking to Arsenio, he said to. Uh, there should be some type of law. And he pointed out one of his band mem members that was bald and said he should have to polish his head every day before he comes on the show. Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, Dan, I want to stop you there. Only thanks. Thanks for the call, Dan. Only because I'm I'm already late, uh, and I want I want to get the news on here, and you'll want to hear the news. But uh, okay, another one to look up in the Will Smith Chris Rock uh, thing. Uh, we'll get to the grandparent scam next on Kitchener Today, City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today, guest hosting, and uh, I think I'm back Monday as well. So I want you to listen to Kitchener Today every day, but also, just a note, I'll uh, be back guest hosting on Monday. Now, a uh, quick note about masks that I was going to add. We ran out of time, so just throw it in here quickly. Uh, I have these surgical-style masks. I had the neoprene for a while. I still have it. And I always carry extra now, which is um, because one day the, uh, the, the uh, string around the ear broke, so I kind of had to hold it there while I was uh, – and then um, – one day I'm walking with my mask out, outside and I start to pull it down a little bit because there's nobody around and I'm outdoors. And then I'm adjusting it as I get near and whatever. And a wire from the top where you, you know, the 
pinch, the wire had popped out of the side and I poked my finger on the wire and it really hurt for a, a bit, you know. And I, I posted something about it. I said, here's a real 21st century, you know, COVID injury you wouldn't have thought of before. A, a wire came out of my face mask and poked my finger. And immediately about 10 w- women posted, uh, I've worn a bra most of my life. Welcome to my world. <laughs> and I was like, really? And I mentioned this to my daughter after a while and she was like, Oh yeah, all the time, the wires come out, poke you. And it's like, yeah, it's just a, it's a, and I was like, well, there you see, I became a little more educated um, and a little more empathetic towards others just by that little experience. Yeah. So now I know how to not be poked by any exposed wires from a mask, but there you have it. Masks. I will continue. I hope more, People do at least be sensible, sensible about it in these enclosed areas. And let's face it, nobody's really counting capacity limits anymore. And it, it is pretty crowded suddenly in the aisles of the store. And uh, uh, mask is the last little defense that I have control over that I can do. I can still do. I can wear the mask. Earlier on this morning, I was reading a, a sad story about uh, someone, and I believe city of Toronto, who was scammed, a senior citizen scammed by uh, this ruse that was really targeting seniors. And it's, as a matter of fact, called the grandparent scam. And this particular individual lost uh, about $25,000 in this scam. And the way it works is basically they do call you and tell you that you have a a grandson, I don't know how they would sort of, in this particular case, the gentleman did not have a grandson. He said, I, I have a nephew. And they quickly switched it to, oh, yeah, I meant nephew. I meant nephew. And uh, they went on to say that the, the, the grandson or nephew has been found in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we, it's RCMP calling. We really don't want to pursue this. But, you know, he was found. And uh, basically, it gets down to money will fix this. And then money is changed hands. That's the simple version of it. Uh, our guest is the CEO of CanAge, Laura Tamblin Watts, joining us now to talk about this. Hello, Laura. Hello. This grandparent scam, I take it you've heard about it before. It's out there. I guess it's still out there, isn't it? just about every day of the week. It's one of the most successful scams against older people that we've ever had in class. Both the RCMP and in the U.S., the FBI, have released formal warnings about the grandparent scam. It's incredibly successful because what it does is it connects to the heartstrings of older people. What it does is the phone rings and they'll say, hello, and you say, you know, hello, and they say, you know, grandma or grandpa, it's me. It's your grandson or your granddaughter. And then they'll respond back usually with your name. Oh, is it you, Laura? Or is it you, Mike? Yes, yes, it's Laura. It's Mike. And then there is some, as you say, time-pressured situation that money will fix. Maybe they've been traveling and have been caught by the police. Maybe they've been in an accident and they need money to help them out. Whatever urgent situation is there, it's going to require money being transferred. And not usually by an Internet transfer like the usual ways. You'll often need a wire transfer, or in some cases, even gift card transfers. So 
how do they know that I'm uh, uh, of age to have a grandson or is it just random? Do they just keep calling until they get one? Well, they scrape a lot of information off of social media. Um, it can be random, but very often what you don't see is all of those things on Facebook that ask you, you know, what year you're born and, you know, where you live and so on. All of that information is being scraped and sold and it's being sold on a black market. And when one of those scams hits, then that information is sent as a hot lead to the other fraudsters and scam artists who may be coming after you in a number of different ways. So they know that you've fallen for a scam once before, and that means that your information is being sold for between 5 and $10 a hit on this shadow black market. It's rare that it's completely random, but it can be. They may find your information also from being, you know, listed in a senior's home or a retirement community. And sometimes it's, you know, information that they're gathered from from other, you know, publicly available sources. Yeah. And that, and that's the, the point. I know that you can be hacked and people can find out more about you. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the point is always made how much information about ourselves we put out there on a daily basis that people can Absolutely. then clean and put together. One of those Facebook quizzes I just put, this is a scam because it may look right. like they just want to tell you, you know, what your spirit animal is or what your best color is or what your favorite month is. Every single one of those pieces of information is being gathered. And the only reason they exist is for scamming. So it may look like a fun quiz to do or something that someone sends you, but it is um, a very, cleverly put front door into the scam artist's world. Right, right. Uh, I, I actually did a post one day on Facebook and I said, I uh, give me your your social security number, give me your visa card number with expiry date and give me your bank account number and I'll tell you your favorite color. Yes, exactly so. That's exactly now, right. Of course, nobody, nobody fell for that, but that's, that, that's, you know, that, that's what those are exactly. I, I'm the same as you. I cringe when I see those. I'm like, what are you doing? Sometimes the information is random. Like they may just call you up and because they have a call list that they're going through in the same way that any other call center does, but they're extremely well organized and they're more likely to have lists built from other things that you've bought, quite legitimately bought. It may be the location that you live in. It may be a senior's heavy location. And remember, lots of people have grandchildren that aren't particularly old. You know, I'm 50 years old. I don't have any grandkids yet, but it would certainly not be impossible for me to have grandkids at that age. And so even just tossing it out there that it's your grandson or granddaughter, you know, your chances of getting somebody on the phone, they're pretty good. Yeah, and it's and it's the phone too. I mean, I, I mean, maybe we we don't all know that we're not supposed to click on this or click on that, but I, we're becoming more aware. But suddenly, when the phone rings, boy, that's right there, isn't it? It's so personal, and because they're excellent at this, don't feel ashamed for having fallen for it. Remember, scams and frauds only are in business because they work. It is the ultimate capital market. If it doesn't work, those guys go out of business. But what we know is that this grandparent scam works extremely well. And so one of the more sophisticated versions of it is that there will be two people, one pretending to be your relative and one pretending to be another source of you know, counsel or help. So they could be a doctor, they might be a police officer, they could be a lawyer, all of which is going to be the person to tell you how to send the money. 
in some scams where they hook you one or two times, because remember, if you do get hooked, they're more likely to come back asking for more money. It's not one and done, right? There's going to need to be another deposit given or a further expense. They can even prime you and tell you how to go to the bank and withdraw cash and essentially give you the exact information of where you should take it in terms of wiring. And they may have local people on the ground watching you. So it's not necessarily just a uh, arm's length type of transaction where they hope you do it. They often have local people who are going to watch you go into the financial institution and watch you go into the um, the place and space that is going to have you sending the money. So it is extra frightening because it can be people closer to you because they activate their network. Wow. Yeah. That's, you've just described something that's really frightening. My goodness. Uh, it's and I know we're trying to go ahead. Go ahead. I was thinking the other thing that's important to know is if you get caught for the grandparent scam, you can be darn sure that you're going to get a lottery scam and a cruise ship scam and, you know, a subscription scam within the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And I, I might need the duct cleaning uh, also. So who knows? Uh, exactly but, right. So here we are. And today we're actually trying to talk about this to get, get the word out there. But what can be done here other than, I guess, if you, have this discussion with somebody if you feel they're vulnerable or whatever, sort of a, is that it? Just start talking about it and tell people, Hey, these, these things are false. They are false. A big part of it is raising awareness that this could happen and that this is a known problem. I mean, our big suggestion of course, is that you hang up the phone and don't answer, but that's not necessarily what some people will do at a minimum. Ask questions that only that person would know. What was the color of your father's car? Where did you go to high school? What was your favorite team? Ask a question that only they would know. Pretty certain that they'll try to baffle gab through it, and then they'll hang up because they know they won't be able to pass that information. So first degree is awareness, and if you can possible just hang up and don't answer. Do not give a name. And if you can avoid it, don't say yes or no, because they could be recording your voice. And then when they do automated uh, different types of phone services in, they have your voice saying yes or no, which can help them get through a phone tree pretending to be you. So don't say yes or no. Don't fill in information. And if you uh, are going to continue the conversation, ask questions that only that person would know. Now, at CanH, do you have a website or do you have anything that, as a resource people can sort of go through what you just said if they want to reference it later and, and go through this kind of thing? Absolutely. We're at canage.ca, C-A-N-A-G-E dot C-A. You'll find great resources under our resources section, including look at the grandparent fraud and scam. And we know how important it is for people to be prepared. So make sure that you're able to Share this information with others. Let them know that it's existence. And again, don't feel bad if you have been caught reaching out and telling someone that you took it on good faith that now you're worried can save you from a particular case that happened just yesterday where an Uxbridge couple lost $1.2 million through a fraud and scam oh. that was directed at them. So again, these things only ever 
are in existence because they're effective. The other thing that we'd ask is that you call the National Anti-Fraud Center and record it. They may be able to help you as well. Right, right. I think um, at least if you do that, then they become more aware that this is going on and they can maybe um, uh, spring into action in some cases as well. So, yeah, canage.ca and and, uh, look up some of this stuff. It's important to know. Uh, Laura, thank you so much. Thank you. Laura Tamlin Watts is CEO of canage.ca. That's C-A-N-A-G-E.ca, canage.ca. And the scams go on. And, and, and don't, you know, I think also don't be embarrassed. As she said, don't be embarrassed. As this one gentleman lost about 25 grand on the grandparents scam, uh, talked about it, said, talk, I, you feel bad because you fell for it. And everybody thinks they're smarter than that. But uh, not only don't feel bad, but and and share the information, but um, you know do do talk about it and do. I, I think I fell for a computer scam. It's got to be about six, seven, eight years ago, maybe a little longer. And I've had a um, I have a brother who's an IT guy and has been one for a long time and would lecture me about um, what's out there. Since uh, since I was on CompuServe, you know, like forever, man, I've heard about this stuff. So I'm pretty savvy, pretty smug about my awareness. And I fell for an online scam. Now I got out of it because I caught it in time because suddenly it was like, you know, three, two, one. And oh, light bulb. I get it. I'm being scammed. How do I get out of this? And I somehow managed. And it was an effort. It was an effort just to to get out of this whole thing, even in, in the, in the brief moments that I've, I've been scammed. Uh, and even after all that, a couple of weeks ago, I get an email from a friend I haven't talked to for about five, six years, how are things? And I'm like, Oh, great. How's Bill? How's Joan? How, you know, like, and then I get an email back saying, yeah, my knees are really bad. I can't walk. I need somebody to give me some gift cards and money. And I'm like, Oh, this is a scam. And I've just shared some information with them. It's, it's so, it's so easy. No matter how, savvy you feel i think to um i i actually had the reverse happen too where um i can't remember the situation but it was my it was my bank a re, you know a big canadian banking institution you would know the name you don't have people bank there it's my bank account it's been my bank account for years they they uh sent me an e- was it an email yeah it was an email about something then I had to look at an account and I went, well, this is stupid. Click, 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 and just delete. And uh, then I'm at the bank one day and I asked them about this and they went, oh yeah, no, this is, um, you, sh- you should be paying, you should have paid this like three weeks ago. And I'm like, would you send me emails I'm, that I'm deleting because I don't want to be scammed. I had the reverse happen. I'm like, so I lectured them about emails and it's not like, well, this looks legitimate and it's the logo and it's the right one because those are phishing scams. You know that they can replicate all that too. So don't feel bad. Uh, learn more. Talk to other people you feel may be vulnerable. Have you ever fallen for anything? Uh, would you care to admit it? Uh, we'll take some calls and uh, wrap up this topic in just a moment here on City News 570. I'm Larry Fedora, guest hosting. We're just talking about the grandparents scam and how people are falling for it. Boy, our guest, Laura Tamblin Watts of CanAge, 
had some great information on this, didn't she? And the website um, there, canage.ca, has some information. And uh, a lot of people want to talk about this, so I'm going to get to as many calls as we can. Here's Terry. Hello, Terry. What's up? Hey, hi, Larry. Uh, it's funny you mentioned the one about the bank. I received a text message. Well, I received a few, but what threw me off was that I don't even deal with that bank, so I knew it was a it was a scam. But the, many years ago, I actually got a call about a within a cruise ship. Like uh, I answered the phone, and there was these bells ringing and you know applause and all that. You right, just want right, a cruise ship right. or a cruise, you know, uh, a trip on a cruise, and I said. So then I was talking to someone, and they started asking for all this information. And I, you know, after about a couple of minutes, I just got tired of it. And I said, you know what? I, I don't want the cruise. She goes, you don't want to win a cruise sh- a trip on a cruise ship? I said, no, no. I, you know what? I get, you know, I, I, I get, you know, I don't like water, and I get seasick just watching it on TV. And I hung up, and that was the end of that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, once the questions start rolling, that you know, you know, that something is is amiss there. So. Yeah, for sure. Terry, thanks for the call. Great recall. Great memory, too, of the cruise ship calls. Not that they still don't happen. I just I haven't heard one of those for a long time. And I remember they used to happen all the time. Here's Kevin. Kevin, welcome to Kitchener today. Good afternoon. I just got a little piece of advice that may work well for uh, people that have received an online scam with links attached to it. And not everyone may be aware, but if you hover over the link with your mouse, your icon, your pointer, it should show the address of where it's going to take you to. And if it doesn't resemble where it came from, and I'll use Walmart or TD Bank or whoever as an example, if it looks something that's completely off the mark, then uh, that's probably a good indication that's a fictitious link and it's not going to go where you think it's going to go. Right. Good point. Kevin, thank you for the call. That's a great call. The hover. Yeah, the hover. Why not? Yeah, a lot of times that will um, give you some information before you actually uh, click. And I, I, I got to be frank, I'm, I'm scared of the click. It's not so much that I click it and see that it's a scam and then close it. I don't even want to click it because I feel like sometimes if they're sophisticated enough, just me clicking has now given them some information or some tools that they didn't have before. Here's Barbara. Barbara, welcome to the program. Hi, it's really enjoyable, yeah, and you have a lot of good information. I just have a comment. I think a lot of the people that are responding are because a lot of seniors still have landlines, and they don't necessarily Mm -hmm. have cell phones. So I think um, people with landlines are being targeted quite a bit, and they're probably seniors. And, of course, they're very polite, and you don't want to cut somebody off, and you want to hear them. And, of course, also a lot of people have trouble hearing, and so maybe they just are afraid to say, I didn't hear you, and so they do respond without thinking it through. And a Mm -hmm. lot of people talk really fast, and again, it's hard to understand them. And I know I've had friends where I've mentioned, hey, be careful of what you put in writing or, you know, the information. They said, hey, I got nothing to hide. I'm not worried. And um, I think, you know, a lot of us are not aware of what can be done with that information. Right. Right. Great points all, Barbara. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for the call, Barbara. I appreciate that. You know, Barbara just listed every, well, not every, but many of the vulnerabilities that seniors have that, that exactly they count on and prey on. That you're going to have a landline, that must mean you're a little bit older, which factually probably fits, that hearing, that understanding, you, you know, all of these recognition, all these kinds of things. Uh, one more call quickly. Here's Bruce. Hello, Bruce. How you doing? A couple of things. Um, I would say, like, let's say your your grandchild's name is, say, Benjamin. 
So all you do is say back to them, is that you, Daniel? And if the person says, yes, this is me, you know, you know right away it's a scam. If it's an older person, then you tell them to write down their grandkids' name just in case they forget. And then the other thing is if they say you want, say, 400 bucks, and they say go to this establishment, or just say, you know, you know what, I got 400 bucks at home. Why don't you come to my house and then call the police and have them meet you there? Yeah. Meet the guy there, whoever's uh, coming, if they, if they do come. Bruce, thank you for the call. I got to go just for time, but it's an interesting call. And I mean, uh, yeah, that's if you're thinking quick and clearly and expecting a scam. But I think you, a lot of people don't and they and, and you panic and especially when it's emotional because it's a family member. And uh, anyway, great calls. Thank you so much. And, and, and a great topic. And our guest on that as well was terrific. It's Kitchener today. I'm Larry Fedorik. Check out my uh, podcast later that same life, wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned to City News 570. And I'll be back on this show on Monday.